Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There is a battle over the border, and it's in Idaho. The lead starts right now. Vile slurs and even physical attacks, hundreds of reports of anti-Semitic, hate-filled incidents in the United States. Can we get a ceasefire at home now? Swipe right for a vaccine. The White House teaming up with dating apps so you could safely meet your next date at a bar again. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of potatoes. Why a big chunk of Oregon wants to join Idaho. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and foreign policy front and center at the White House this afternoon after praising his own administration's role in brokering a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. President Biden today tries to shift his focus to East Asia right now, hosting his South Korean counterpart at the White House. President Biden has long said competition with China is one of the biggest challenges facing the U.S. today. And next hour, we will bring you Remarks from both of the leaders that are speaking live. But the obstacles in the Middle East are far from over. That ceasefire touted by the president, which ended 11 bloody and deadly days of fighting, appears to be extremely fragile right now, with new skirmishes erupting between Israeli security forces and Palestinians today in Jerusalem. President Biden says that quiet and relentless diplomacy got negotiations to the point of a ceasefire, but Can Biden succeed where other U.S. presidents have failed in actually helping to achieve a long-lasting and just peace in the region? Or is Biden not even going to try? CNN's Caitlin Collins reports now from the White House. With the Middle East ceasefire underway, President Biden's quiet diplomacy now in sharper view. I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely. For 11 days, Biden avoided publicly criticizing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or even calling for a ceasefire with a strategy in mind. The best way to do that was not to call out our allies and partners. Biden resisted calls from the progressive wing of his party to come down harder on Netanyahu. In his frantic effort to stay in power and avoid prosecution for corruption, Netanyahu has legitimized extremist forces. After touting the ceasefire, sources say the president feels confident that a light touch was the right one. My administration will continue our quiet, relentless diplomacy toward that end. It remains to be seen how long the ceasefire will last and how deep the divisions within the Democratic Party go. I'm really glad there's a ceasefire. I have every confidence that the Biden administration will make all efforts to maintain it. Today, Biden turns his focus to East Asia, welcoming South Korean President Moon to the White House. President Moon, it's a real honor to have you here participating in this ceremony today. In only his second meeting with a world leader in person, Biden and Moon will talk about North Korea, China, and vaccine diplomacy. 
The South Korean leader was also in the audience as Biden presented his first Medal of Honor to 94-year-old Korean War veteran Army Colonel Ralph Puckett Jr. Though I understand that your first response to us hosting this event was to ask, why all the fuss? <laughs> why all the fuss? Can't they just mail it to me? <laughs> Colonel Puckett, after 70 years, rather than mail it to you, I would have walked it to you. Now, Jake, as there are these questions about what the shift in the Democratic Party is going to look like when it comes to their policy toward Israel, we should note that the White House was asked if they are still going to let that $735 million arms sale to Israel proceed. And the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said, yes, there are no plans to change their security assistance to Israel at this time. Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. With a ceasefire taking hold, it's now time to assess the damage. First, we go to Gaza, which is in complete shambles. Aerial video showing just some of the wreckage. Entire buildings reduced to rubble. Families left without homes, displaced, now dealing with the additional burden of attempting to rebuild their lives. CNN's Ben Wiedemann joins us now from inside Gaza. And Ben, tell us what you're seeing there. Just how bad is the damage from this conflict? The damage is severe. Uh, We were in areas where bombs were dropped in the middle of roads, creating massive craters uh, that broke sewage pipes and water pipes. In addition to buildings and homes totally collapsed, we were on one street where three buildings in a row uh, were completely destroyed in the early hours of the 16th of May, killing more than 40 people. So the, the destruction is massive. And of course, the question is, how are they going to rebuild? Now, in the past, and let's keep in mind, it's now four wars Gaza has had since December 2008. And after each of the previous three, they were able to rebuild with the aid of Qatar, for example, who gave money to Hamas to help it administer the Gaza Strip, with Israel's acquiescence, by the way. And the expectation is it will happen again. They will be able to rebuild, perhaps not to the extent that those who have lost their homes would like them to be rebuilt, but it is possible. The worry is, of course, that just as we've had four wars since 2008, there's a high probability that there will be another war and there will be more destruction and another time to rebuild. So it's a cycle that seems to go on and on, and there's no movement to somehow break this cycle, stop this cycle of wars, and the need to rebuild after every single war. Jake? Yeah, and Ben Wiedemann, I guess the death toll in Gaza is around 220. Last time I saw, that number keeps getting updated. Do we know if most of those killed were actually terrorists or militants? Uh, I know that more than 60, according to uh, the Palestinian Health Ministry, were children. The death toll now is in excess of 240. And the Ministry of Health says that 66 of them are children. Now, By and large, it's considered that the numbers coming out of the Ministry of Health are accurate. It's the breakdown that sometimes raises questions. 
there's no doubt that there has been a large death toll among the civilian population. Hamas habitually does not, however, put out its death toll. So we probably will never know that. But I think that shouldn't obscure the fact that many innocent civilians have been killed here, Jake. All right, Ben Wiedemann in Gaza. Stay safe. I appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Brett McGurk. He's the White House coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. Brett, good to, to see you again. I want to get your reaction to what we just heard from CNN's Ben Wiedemann in Gaza. Many parts of Gaza, just in complete shambles, innocent civilians uh, who were lucky enough to escape with their lives lost their homes uh, because of Israeli military strikes. What role, if any, do you think the U.S. should play in helping to rebuild uh, Gaza? Well, Jake, thanks so much for having me. I think, first of all, we have a ceasefire that was put in place last night uh, because President Biden set an objective about 12 days ago very clear that while we support Israel's right to defend itself, we want to make sure this war uh, comes to a swift uh, conclusion as possible. And we worked in a very disciplined and patient way with the Israelis, uh, with the Palestinian Authority, with the Egyptians, many regional partners, to get in place for a ceasefire that was uh, put in place last night. Um, This was patient, quiet, and effective diplomacy led by the president with multiple conversations with the leaders throughout the region. Um, I would just say going forward, Secretary Blinken uh, will be in the region next week, and we'll be in a very uh, intensive discussion that started today uh, with the U.N. and others about uh, the dire needs in Gaza, which you just just identified. And we'll be working with our regional partners to uh, do all we can uh, to get uh, immediate humanitarian aid uh, into those areas. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be difficult. But our approach, I think, will be exemplified exactly what you saw over the last 11 days. Uh, it'll be quiet behind the scenes and organizing and marshalling uh, the regional partners to do uh, everything we possibly can uh, to reduce the suffering there. So, Brett, uh, obviously a ceasefire is great, but it's a short-term solution. The Israeli people need to know that they can live without Hamas rockets coming down. And the Palestinian people, they cannot continue to live in squalor and without rights, basic human rights, such as the right to vote, the right of self-determination. This conflict is never going to end until these issues are solved. Is the Biden administration going to try to do something to fix the problem so we don't have these outbreaks of violence every few years? Uh, Well, again, Jake, I think we're very realistic about the situation here. I think you have to keep in mind we inherited a situation in which all, um, all connections with the Palestinians had been severed. Uh, we had no. We cut off all aid. We cut off all security assistance. We closed our consulate. So we've been restoring over the past couple months, uh, restoring those connections. We turned back on aid to the Palestinians in April, in early April, $230 million of humanitarian and security assistance. Those efforts will continue. Uh, the Israeli situation also very complicated. They were heading into a fourth election when we came into office. Uh, we immediately established very deep uh, relationships with the Israelis. Uh, we had three strategic dialogues with them in which we were beginning this very conversation about the future and a, and a political horizon for the Palestinians. This conversation has to be engaged. Uh, we will engage it. I think if you look at what the president said last night, how he ended his statement, uh, again, we think there are some opportunities here, but we have to be very realistic. We do not want to sit, uh, set unachievable uh, objectives um, and, and waste time pursuing those. So again, Secretary Blinken's trip, I think this week will be very important. We're focused on the immediate needs and the aftermath. But I think what's critical here, Jake, you know, there was a war between Israel and Hamas in 2014. It went on for 51 days. There were over 2,000 casualties. This war was over in 11 days. 
even after Hamas, let's keep in mind it was Hamas, a terrorist group, launched 4,000 rockets uh, at Israeli cities and towns. This war uh, had every uh, indication that this was going on for going to go on for many weeks, uh, if not months. And it was a patient, quiet diplomacy here led by the president that got it into place to end after 11 days. And now we have to work just as hard in the aftermath uh, to make sure we reduce the risks uh, of another event triggering such a conflict. So part of the, the ceasefire was helped uh, by the Egyptians, which was a, a peace process negotiated by Jimmy Carter. Uh, there is also now the, the Israel has diplomatic relations with a bunch of Sunni Arab nations, including Qatar and the UAE, negotiated by Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz during the Trump years. There is an opportunity to bring in uh, Arab allies uh, of the United States that also have diplomatic relations with Israel to try to negotiate a peace. There might be a better opportunity in a weird way, even though the internal politics between Hamas and Netanyahu and all that seem to make things completely out of reach. But because of all the other alliances, perhaps there is opportunity. You keep talking about you want to be realistic, and I appreciate what you're saying. You don't want to, like, set unachievable uh, goals. But at the same time, isn't part of achieving peace trying to achieve the impossible? Well, absolutely. Look, we have a very serious peace process going on to end the war in Yemen. We're working in Libya with a new government to reduce the risk of additional conflict there. Uh, we are working with the countries in the region. I was in the region three weeks ago. Again, Secretary Blinken will be there next week. Uh, we're very supportive of these normalization arrangements with Israel, uh, with UAE, Morocco, and Bahrain. We are in touch with all those capitals throughout this crisis. They sent very important messages, reinforcing messages uh, into the Israelis and others to try to bring the ceasefire about. And we're going to look to expand those. I think we do have some tools in our kit. Look, throughout the Middle East, there's some things going on, uh, Jake, that through our quiet diplomacy, uh, the Saudis and the Iranians are talking. Uh, Egypt and Turkey are talking, UAE and Turkey, all of these centrifugal forces that were really kind of causing conflicts throughout the region, there's some centripetal forces bringing countries together. We're encouraging that through our diplomacy, uh, but we're, in, we're just very realistic and clear-eyed about the challenges in the Middle East, particularly in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. But make no mistake, uh, we're going to do everything we can. Where there are bridges to be built, we're going to work to bridge them. And we have been working, again, over these first 120 days to restore those diplomatic connections with the Palestinians. I think you'll see that very visibly when Secretary Blinken is in the region next week. And, of course, with the Israelis. Um, we're very focused on their, uh, on their right to self-defense. We're going to replenish their Iron Dome stockpiles. The Iron Dome saved thousands of Israeli lives over the last 11 days. Uh, so all of this is going to continue. I guess this is a simple yes or no question, which is odd for the Middle East, but I think this one can be done uh, with a yes or no. Is the situation on the ground, the squalor and the lack of human rights that so many Palestinians uh, experience, is that tenable? Uh, look, we have been talking. If you look at our, our, we put readouts out after every call the president has, including with President Abbas. We talk about the equality, the indignity that is need, we need to achieve between Israelis and Palestinians. So, no, it's not acceptable. Right. And in, in Gaza, we have a situation where uh, Qatar and other countries pay a lot of money to make sure that people can live in peace. But Hamas is also a big problem. And that's why the president said last night, we're going to try to do this in a way to ensure that Hamas cannot simply restock its military arsenal. There's a lot of work to do, but you'll see a lot of that work uh, begin next week. Brad McGurk, we always thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And thanks for your efforts to achieve peace uh, all over. Thank Jake, you so much. Thanks so much. Police dragging, beating and tasing a man during a deadly arrest. And his mother says, lying about how he died. Now CNN has obtained new body cam video. And we have not seen this since the Civil War, perhaps. The push to split 
a state into two because the state's too blue. Stay with us. International lead a spike in attacks on Jewish American Americans across the United States, in many cases seemingly fueled by the deadly conflict half a world away in the Middle East. Cameras have captured some of the incidents. A warning, they are a bit graphic. In New York, police say a Jewish man was kicked and beaten during a protest in Times Square. In Arizona, anti-Semitic vandals hit the synagogue of former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And yesterday we told you about that incident in Los Angeles. Jewish Americans dining outside, possibly targeted in an attack by a group of pro-Palestinians. Human rights groups are warning that these attacks are escalating at an alarming rate, as CNN's Miguel Marquez now reports. Pro-Palestinian demonstrations turn violent. In New York City, a 29-year-old man wearing a yarmulke beaten by a group of five to six individuals Thursday, some chanting, F Jews, F Israel. One 23-year-old is now under arrest and facing numerous charges, including one related to a hate crime, according to a law enforcement source. In Los Angeles, police investigating a possible hate crime after a pro-Palestinian demonstration turned violent, with some protesters shouting, death to Jews and Israel kills children. One witness telling CNN pro-Palestinian protesters started throwing bottles and one asking diners seated outside who was Jewish. A fragile ceasefire between Israel and Hamas may bring the temperature down here, but protests and allegations of anti-Semitism on a sharp rise, according to the Anti-Defamation League. In Vegas, Miami, Tucson and Long Island, protests and report of hate crimes as tension and violence a half a world away continues to incite anger here. We're literally tracking more than a 50% increase in anti-Semitic acts over the past week. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says there have been incidents of violence against Muslims as well and condemns anyone on any side of an issue who engages in hate speech, intimidation, or violence. Now, in total, 26 individuals, 26 pro-Palestinian, as well as pro-Israeli protesters were arrested here in New York. And the hope is, among both sides, Jews and Muslims in the country, is that if that ceasefire holds in the Middle East, it will bring the tension down in this country as well. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez in New York. Thank you so much. Also in our national lead today, CNN has now obtained more body camera footage in the apparent killing of Ronald Green. The black man was tased, beaten, and dragged by state troopers back in 2019. He died on his way to the hospital, according to law enforcement. Louisiana State Police say it's premature for the Associated Press to have released these short clips of the body camera footage from two years ago. While this case is still under investigation, the department has yet to address claims by Green's family of a law enforcement cover-up. His mother told CNN police never even mentioned a struggle or their use of force. We were told by two officers that my son, behind of a, a high-speed chase, uh, ran into a tree, his car ran into a tree, and he died of head injuries. We were given a runaround because we were told that he was being taken out of state to Arkansas for his first autopsy. CNN's Ryan Young uh, joins us now. Ryan, you've watched a longer version of the body cam footage that CNN just obtained. What does it show? 
Yeah, look, we got this video maybe about an hour ago, Jake. And just to tell our viewers, we're going through this video piece by piece, and that's why we haven't put it on TV just yet. We're going through it to make sure there's nothing that would sort of shock the public or something that we couldn't air on TV. While that process is going on, I've been able to watch it. And what it appears to show is a higher-level officer, maybe a lieutenant, arriving to the scene, talking to the officers about exactly what's going on. From there, you can hear Ronald Green still begging for his life. He's basically saying... Jesus, Jesus, hallelujah. And at some point, the officers are saying to him, why did you run? You just ran a red light. Why did you run from him? It's going to be a simple traffic stop. And then you can still hear him uh, trying to get up from the ground. One officer places him back on the ground and says, don't move, don't move. And you can hear that officer say, I'm trying not to have him spit on us again. It doesn't seem like he's been able to get a breath. But Jake, what stands out to me is the fact that during this whole incident going back and forth, there's no place for for him to run. And he has handcuffs on that could have turned him over and allowed him to get a breath. That doesn't happen. Of course, this is part of this investigation that we haven't been able to see all this video, some 46 minutes of it. If they would have released it all, we could review it to see exactly what happened. We also don't see Ronald Green struggling during those moments. Ryan, you've also obtained uh, the autopsy of Green's death. What does that say? Yeah, I, I, we got this autopsy uh, from a source again, um, and I received it probably about uh, 30 minutes ago, and we're going through it. Uh, Jake, from what we've read in the autopsy, the first part, it says that the cause of death is listed as cocaine-induced aggravated delirium complicated by motor vehicle collision, physical struggle, inflicted by head injury and restraint. Um, the report was prepared by the Union Parish Coroner's Office, and of course, we obtained it Uh, Like I said, about a half hour ago, they said Green's head lacerations were inconsistent with the motor vehicle collision injury and most consistent with multiple impacts from a blunt object. Now, of course, we're going through this autopsy as well, Jake. So now we have this new video. We have an autopsy where they seem to say there were some drugs in his system. When you watch the video that we have, we also don't see him struggling. He continues to say he is sorry during this investigation. And this is part of the problem. If there was transparency in this case, if it didn't take two years, if we had all the video released, we could kind of put the picture together, just like investigators are. Now, of course, for the uh, state troopers, they're saying they're under federal guidance right now not to talk because it's being reviewed. But we've seen in many other cases across this country that federal and state investigators can be working at the same time to come to a different conclusion or the same conclusion in a case like this. We'll continue to look at the facts here, Jake, and bring them to you as we have them. All right, Ryan Young, on top of this important case, thank you so much. The kids doing their part, the promising numbers after the vaccine rollout for teens. And our health lead, crowds are back. Thanks to the vaccine, this weekend Florida is holding a 30,000-person wine and food festival spanning three counties. 40,000 fans are expected to flood downtown St. Louis for the Cardinals and Blues games tonight. And the New York Knicks are going to host 15,000 fans indoors on Sunday for the first round of the playoffs. As CNN's Erica Hill reports for us now, there's still a lot of work to do as health experts try every trick in the book to get vaccine holdouts their shots. From free drinks to free money. If you needed one more good reason, then uh, just go out and get vaccinated for your chance to win a share of this $2 million. States are pulling out all the stops to get more shots in arms. The White House hooking up with several dating apps. People who display their vaccination status are 14% more likely to get a match. 
we have finally found the one thing that makes us all more attractive, a vaccination. More than 160 million people in the U.S. now have at least one shot. But the average daily pace of vaccinations is dropping fast, down nearly 50 percent since last month's peak. We need to do whatever we can to give people a safe incentive um, to get vaccinated. The South sparking new concerns. These eight states among the 10 where less than half the adult population has received at least one dose. Last summer, right around June, July, we saw a big surge of cases in the South. Why in the South? Because it gets pretty hot. It's hard to spend time outside. People cluster indoors. And if we have large numbers of unvaccinated people in those states, we may very well see a surge in those states. One bright spot. Take a deep breath, 12 to 15 year olds account for nearly 25 percent of new vaccinations nationwide in the past week. This is their shot to being uh, teenagers. And by rolling up their sleeves, they actually help protect their parents, their teachers, their classmates and their communities. Average daily cases now under 30,000, the lowest level in nearly a year. And at one of the Bay Area's largest hospitals, no COVID patients for the first time in 14 months. I did have tears in my eyes. It feels like a milestone. Another milestone coming this Sunday when 15,000 fans will pack Madison Square Garden for game one of the NBA playoffs. This is what we've been waiting for, New York. D.C. lifting most capacity limits today. Rhode Island dropping its remaining COVID restrictions a week early, thanks to vaccinations, as Americans adjust to yet another new normal. And Jake, as some more states, I should say, push to remove masks in school, there's new CDC data today that shows lower case numbers in elementary schools where teachers, staff and students wore masks. Uh, That data also found that with increased ventilation, case numbers were lower as well. Thanks, Erica. And before you go, I just want to underline this point. I'm vaccinated. My wife is vaccinated. Our 13 year old got her first shot. As soon as it's good for the 11 year old, he's going to get one. Tell us about your family. Uh, You know, same. So my husband and I both fully vaccinated. My 14-year-old is one shot in. We, too, have an 11-year-old, so we're waiting on him. But look, my in-laws just came this weekend, and those hugs were amazing because they are fully vaccinated, and it means everything to get our family back together. Get vaccinated, folks. Thanks, Erica. We're joined now by Dr. Richard Besser. He is the former acting CDC director and the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Besser, good to see you, as always. So 12 to 15-year-olds make up Made, they made up a quarter of vaccinations since they became eligible. They're only 5% of the entire U.S. population. That's an incredible pace, as if I didn't already think the world of Gen Z. But I have to say, overall, the daily pace of vaccinations in the U.S. has slowed down from 50%, about 50% from April. So what can be done, what can be done to make sure that the 12 to 15-year-olds keep getting vaccinated at these very high rates? Yeah, so yeah, the the slowing of of, of the rate of vaccination, Jake, um, was was expected and was predicted, and I wish there had been more done to to set that as the the expectation. And the reason for that is you had all this pent up demand of people wanting to get vaccinated, and there wasn't enough supply, and so you released that, and people were waiting, they couldn't get appointments. Then the vaccine supply caught up, and we were seeing three million, as many as four million people a day. That's all been met. But we're still seeing people getting vaccinated. It's at a slower rate. These incentives and, and reaching people where they are is going to help a lot. With, with the young kids, it's going to be the same kind of thing where you see this big surge, 600,000 12 to 15 year olds getting vaccinated last week. 
once once the big demand is is met there then it's going to be it's going to slow down a little bit and we're going to have to think about how do you how do you meet parents where they are how do you how do you address people's concerns so that 12 to 15 year olds are getting vaccinated and when people start school in the fall it can be a, a normal middle school, a normal high school experience for our, for our young people. Which is what we want. A, a poll conducted by your foundation, as well as Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, this is shocking, found that 45% of Americans think that the CDC is doing only a fair job or a poor job. What does the CDC need to do to regain the trust of the American people? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's hard. You know, you know regaining trust that you've lost is it takes a lot it takes a lot of time and i i think you do it by seeing some of the things that we're we are seeing and that's transparency having the opportunity to talk to the public when you make a change explaining what the science is that's that's driving that uh, i i think there was a bit of a challenge last week the science was really strong on the new guidance that said that fully vaccinated people could could go indoors without masks but the rollout was rough. People didn't see it coming, and it's led to challenges in terms of implementation. But being upfront, being transparent, letting people know why you're making decisions and what they mean is it will go far. Dr. Richard Besser, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Coming up, President Biden will speak after a ceasefire is achieved in the Middle East, how he handled the crisis, what it could mean for future hotspots. That's next. Any minute now, we're expecting President Biden to hold a news conference at the White House along with the president of South Korea. This is less than 24 hours into a very fragile ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Biden touted his behind-the-scenes approach with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as successful and said, quote, quiet diplomacy played a critical role in the agreement. Let's discuss uh, Margaret, let me start with you. President Biden is obviously more versed in U.S. foreign policy than any of his recent predecessors. Uh, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years. This week's conflict gave us a, a glimpse into how he's going to try to approach international affairs, which apparently is largely privately uh, not using the bully pulpit. Uh, what do you make of the strategy? What he's done, Jake, is, especially in the case of Israel, he has reasserted the United States as a stabilizing force in the region while managing his left flank in the United States Congress, which was a sort of a new factor in U.S. Israeli, uh, sort of the, the, the rhetoric and the tone and the way the news media and the narrative played out. And so, you know, it, it strikes me that part of the approach, while it is very much America is back and reengaging with alliances, I think he feels the need to, to personally build back relationships while also managing a very new dynamic in his party, which is the progressive foreign policy agenda. Which is, uh, Paul, very critical of Israel, uh, especially uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and others. Um, how do you think he has negotiated that? It seems, frankly, like Biden has just kind of ignored the criticism from uh, the progressive voices in his party. I'm not sure if he's, I mean, he's not a big social media guy. He might not even really be aware of it. Yeah, and I think ignoring those voices is how he got to become president. That's how he won 44 out of 55 primaries. Uh, Joe Biden knows foreign policy, and Margaret's exactly right, right. He comes to this job with more experience than any new president since George H.W. Bush. 
and he knows what he's doing. And he knows there has to be no daylight between the United States of America and the state of Israel. Uh, and he asserted that publicly. And then privately, he did, apparently, we see reporting. I don't have any inside knowledge. Privately, did uh, push uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to, to have a ceasefire. I was struck that his tone in the statement about the ceasefire was spot on. Always assert and defend Israel's rights to defend its citizens, but also say that Palestinians also have an equal right to live in dignity and equality and opportunity and freedom. So I, I think he's got it exactly right. And if, if some of the, the left of his party are howling, that to me suggests he's probably got it about right. Margaret, uh, Biden recently spoke with The New York Times' David Brooks. Brooks writes of Biden, quote, he grew up when America was the undisputed world leader, and now he sees that rapidly slipping away, failing to invest enough in research and development. We're eating our seed corn, Biden continued, quoting corporate executives who talked to him about how the private sector was not looking to the long term. Um, eating our seed corn, that's, a, that's relatable for Gen Z. What does Biden's worldview tell you about how he approaches uh, foreign policy? Look, what Biden is representative of an, an idea and an era in American politics that, by the way, Gen Z is not going to understand either, Jake. And that is, you know, the, the modern American liberal tradition. He came out of World War II. He came out of the sort of the big government expansion of modern American liberalism in the 1950s, 60s and that framed him and framed his, his growing up, his experience. That is a big government approach to solving problems where government has a pronounced role in the lives of, of individuals and in shaping domestic policy, foreign policy. But it is distinct from the progressive trends in the Democratic Party as well. I mean, em emblematic of this is that there's a fight about infrastructure and Joe Biden's planning on paying for it. Now, he's arguing with Republicans about how to pay for it. But the progressives in the party would argue there's no need to worry about paying for it because the extremists in that side at least say that you can print all the money you want. Mm -hmm. So there, it is an interesting deflection dichotomy in the Democratic Party right now where Joe Biden is a modern liberal, not a progressive. And uh, also, Paul, this worldview also impacts, as Margaret notes, how he approaches domestic uh, issues. Brooks writing again, quote, so has Biden now become a straight-up progressive? Biden certainly doesn't think so. The progressives don't like me because I'm not prepared to take on what I would say, and they would say, is a socialist agenda, unquote. So, I mean, and he actually says in that article, like, there's no reason why taxpayers should pay for $70,000 for somebody to go to the University of Pennsylvania, which we should note is, is where his son Bo went uh, and also a bunch of the Trump kids. Yeah, I think he, again, I think he's got it exactly right. You know, uh, we in the media, we pay a lot of attention uh, to the Twitter left, uh, and they're important, and I love them, and I'm on Twitter, blah, blah. But the truth is, the heart of the Democratic Party is, uh, is African Americans, other racial minorities, who tend to be much more moderate. Uh, you know, Biden knows that. That's why he's the nominee. Bernie Sanders won 19 contests, the socialist, uh, Democratic socialist, against Hillary. 19. He only won nine against Joe. So Biden definitely is in sync with the heart and the base of his party. Paul Begala, Margaret Hoover, great to see both of you. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. If you thought the country already was divided politically, there's a new push to actually divide part of it. That's next. In our national lead today, seven rural counties in Oregon are one step closer to becoming part 
of Idaho. It's part of a long-shot campaign by conservatives who say they are fed up with Oregon's left-leaning politics. If this were to happen, the expanded Idaho would become the United States' third largest state in terms of land mass, according to the group behind the push. CNN's Tom Foreman is looking into whether this pipe dream could become a reality. Make room, Idaho, because some neighbors want to come your way, and not just as tourists. Voters in seven rural Oregon counties have now approved ballot measures that require local officials to consider changing the map and allowing their communities to leave Oregon and join Idaho permanently. It's the secessionist vision of a group called Greater Idaho, and Mike McCarter is president. It's not a vote to start a new state. It is just the beginning process of asking Oregon to let Oregon's rural counties go and asking Idaho, would you allow us to become part of your state? In other words, they're not too happy about the influence of progressive places such as Portland and the state's largely democratic government. Insisting, among other things, addicts will be attracted to Oregon from all over the world by more liberal drug laws. That Oregon refuses to protect citizens from criminals, rioters, wildfire arsonists, and more. And top of the list, Oregon will continue to violate more and more American values and American freedoms because normal, rural Americans are outnumbered. Those claims can be and are disputed. However, I understand the frustration of some of my Oregon friends. The Republican governor of Idaho, Brad Little, is sympathetic. That's a decision that's got to be made there. It's got to be made in Idaho. It's got to be made in Congress. And California might have to approve it, too, since the secessionists would also like to lop off the top of that state to give landlocked Idaho a port on the Pacific and presumably surfing. It's all a great, big, gnarly long shot at this point. Movements like this come along all the time. They virtually always fail. We reached out to the Oregon governor's office for a comment. They had nothing to say about it. The bottom line is, if you live in Oregon right now and you'd rather be in Idaho, it'd be a lot easier to pack up a U-Haul and move. Jake? (laughs) Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Soon, President Biden will speak after a ceasefire is reached in the Middle East, and he turns his attention to yet another hot spot. Plus... Trolling Ted. Senator Ted Cruz uses a Russian propaganda video to slam the U.S. military. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.